This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus, a podcast from the Coindesk Network. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Ben Schiller and this is a podcast for uh, the latest news in crypto and particularly for the trends behind the headlines. And it's our opportunity to preview some of the big notable people coming to our festival in Austin in April. So Cameron Thompson, who is a co-host of this podcast, is out this week at the CES conference in Las Vegas where she's no doubt checking out all the whiz-bang tech out there. And uh, we'll welcome her back next week. But for now, we have Danny Nelson. Uh, how are you feeling? I am feeling like it's a new year. Time to get some new scams up in the docket. See what's going <laughs> to burn, what's going to pump, what's going to dump. We're going to talk about it all at Carpe Consensus. Good, good, good. There's sure to be some more scams this year as the market unravels. There's always some skeletons in the closet, and we'll look forward to uncovering those. Any particular scams and scandals that you're focused on at the moment? Well, so for myself, I'm looking forward to seeing how the court system parses through the scams we saw from last year. Most notably, of course, SBF and FTX, but there's just a whole bunch of different projects that have bad actors have been outed, and I'm looking forward to seeing how we deal with that here in the news media uh, here at Coindesk. Yeah, and it's uh, one of the pleasures of journalism, actually, is to... Uh, get to the end of a bull market like this and, and have a lot of tasty morsels to potentially report on. It's not quite the case when the market's going up. So uh, that's uh, a nice thing for a journalist. You know, the, the one big shoe to drop that's remaining on the shelf might be that of our parent company. So it might get a little <laughs> hairy here at Coindesk. We're fine. We're editorially independent. We're just as excited as everyone else to see what happens next yeah. in this crazy market. Yeah, just uh, confirm that uh, we're obviously part of DCG, but we're very much a, an observer of DCG and a critic of DCG at times and editorially independent. So, all right, let's get into it then. Yes. Well, Ben, let's get inside the desk. Ooh. This new year, I'm thinking about Solana, the hardest hit blockchain from the uh, FTX fallout. It's having a pretty banner 2023 all three or four days considered, especially with the launch of Solana's first dog meme coin, Bonk. This thing <laughs> launched the waning days of 2022, and it's pumping big time. It's up thousands of percentage points, and it's kind of rising all boats in the Solana ecosystem with the Sol token surging 20% in recent days. Now, that's pretty good for all the long-term holders of Sol, although maybe not so good because they're still down big time. But it should be noted that this is also causing a bit of a, an issue across Solana DeFi. The Solana token is pumping so fast that on-chain lenders aren't able to keep up with the heat. And there's all sorts of just market mechanics that are going out of whack because of this really fast pump. Interesting that uh, a bonk is uh, pumping like that. Can you just uh, talk about the FTX scandal and what that did to Solana? Solana and FTX were very closely intertwined because... Sam Bankman-Fried was a very big booster of the Solana ecosystem. His exchange promoted Solana, it invested in Solana, his market making and hedge fund Alameda had deals across the ecosystem. And when those blew up in November, when those imploded in November rather, they created a 
vacuum across Solana DeFi that's really left everyone in the lurch. Right. So do you think this bonk, uh, this bonk project has legs? I mean, uh, do you think it's a short-term thing or a long-term thing? Well, you can't really build an ecosystem on top of memes. And that you also kind of can. Like, Dogecoin is not going anywhere. It's, you know, alive and well. Shiba Inu coin has its ups and downs too. Whether this one is just the latest, greatest ripoff of that meme coin trend or something more serious, I'm not sure. But in the short term, I think it's certain that this is bringing more interest into Solana than it could have had in any other way. And just for that, it's a good thing for Solana in that respect. Just to catch up on the idea of the kind of disintegration of Solana, I mean, there was a report coming out before Christmas to say that the amount of active developers on Solana or developing for Solana uh, has declined 90% in 2022, which would suggest kind of long-term foundational issues for that platform. Uh, Would you agree with that? Well, um, I forget who put out that chart, but I do remember it. I, I should say that the people who created that chart had no idea what data sets they were looking at. And so they looked at, <laughs> they looked at one set that showed uh, like a million developers. And, and then they picked the right data set for the second point, and it was more like 100,000. So that's a 90% drop, but it's not a real statistic. That, having said that, it is true that there are some developers in Solana that are packing up and looking elsewhere. So while it's nowhere near as bad as a 90% drop-off, the fall of the ecosystem is real to the extent that some people are being pushed away. Okay. All right. Thank you for that, Danny. Uh, We're going to move on now to another story, which I picked out. That is about a rather innovative, strange platform called Unsellable. And the idea of this is basically that you have a lot of NFTs that you bought at inflated prices. They're now worth Uh, nothing or relatively nothing because of the big crash in the NFT markets. But rather than holding on to those NFTs and, you know, suffering, you can now sell them to this platform called Unsellable for a nominal price. And in doing so, you can then write off the investment that you made in those NFTs and claim a loss on your taxes. So it's basically a tax loss harvesting platform for your worthless NFTs. So what do you think about that, Danny? Well, it's certainly innovative. I don't fully know if it's entirely legal. I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly not an accountant, but it just seems like a very strange loophole. Then again, the reason why one is able to claim losses on a token is because there's a very liquid market or somewhat liquid market for tokens and someone will buy. With NFTs, these things, because they're non-fungible, don't trade as readily. Mm. And so having a service where you can just dump things you don't want is useful. Why would it be illegal, though? I mean, a sale is a sale, isn't it? I mean, if you sell something, you can take a loss on it. Well, I'm not saying it's illegal, but I would definitely like to talk to some attorneys to better understand how this platform is valuing things and just to ensure that everything is above board because this service is being set up to help people make use of a tax loophole, which is that you can claim losses. Uh, And so it's just very incumbent upon all of us to understand all the risks and uh, responsibilities that come with that. Right. So uh, on the uh, platform's website, their catchphrase or their logo is, think of us as Web3 junk removal, which I thought was rather uh, interesting uh, statement. Do you see a feature for this platform? Never mind the legal issues, Danny. Certainly I do. This is not the only iteration of an NFT tax loss harvesting platform that we've seen this year. 
Um, a couple other services, I believe, have launched their own in the recent months ahead of the April deadline. So this is an idea that really makes sense to people who put in a lot of money into an NFT. And now it's down bad. And the best that they can do with that NFT now is to sell it so they can write off gains elsewhere. What I want to know is where are they getting those gains elsewhere because this market has been so brutal. Right. So, Danny, I just wanted to ask you about something. Uh, you said at the end of the last year that you wanted to be a maxi in 2023. Uh, how's that going for you so far? You know, I haven't really paid attention to anything this year. I'm not a maximalist for anything other than the ski slopes. So all these different tokens doing crazy, weird things, I'm not paying attention to them. Tether still hasn't blown up. XRP is still fighting with the SEC. Cardano is still doing whatever the heck Cardano does. I really don't know. It's the same as it ever was, I guess you could say. Maybe you're a maxi for journalism there. It's certainly a maxi for that. And what about you? How are you feeling this year? Uh, I feel like it's going to be a bit of a slog this year, quite frankly, and not to be too much of a downer, but uh, there was so much froth and noise last year. And, you know, it was a big kind of year of scandals and, you know, upheavals. And I think we're going to be into a quieter time this year. It's going to be less exciting, maybe, but uh, it might be more consequential in terms of actually building things for the future and, and really building things that people actually want and need rather than speculation. So I guess so. But I, for, as a journalist, I'm hopeful that things will either keep going up or keep going down because going sideways is extremely boring. And that's when my interest wanes. I'm sure there'll still be ups and downs. I'm not saying that, but I just don't think it can be quite as uppy and downy as it was uh, last year. Do you think we're going to return to, let's say, the market of 2019 where I was writing about IBM trade chains every other <laughs> week and Walmart lettuce? Yeah, I don't think we're going to be going back to enterprise blockchain in a hurry, but we might see some uh, boring projects like that. Maybe uh, central bank digital currencies really coming of age this year, which have uh, never been exciting. <laughs> anyway. All right, we're going to get into a new segment now. Um, we're going to talk about a package that we've been putting out at Coindesk called Crypto 2023, which, as the name suggests, is uh, all about the agenda for the coming year and what's going to happen to a broad range of crypto technology. And we have about 50 pieces in that package from a range of journalists here at Coindesk and contributors. I'm going to pick out a few predictions from a particular article, uh, which is called 10 Predictions for the Future of Crypto in 2023. It was put together by our freelancer, Jeff Wilzer and uh, Trista Lau, a reporter here at Coindesk. And they spoke to a number of bigwigs and VIPs in the crypto universe to get their predictions for the year ahead. So Danny, are you excited about this? I am excited. I want to figure out what's coming and what we think the future holds. Okay, so I'm going to run through a few predictions and you're going to give me your feedback on them, either a yes or a no, and uh, maybe some nuance as well. So the first one comes from Laura Shin. She is the host of the Unchained podcast and a legitimate OG in this space, uh, someone who's been around a long time and has spoken to many, many people about what's going on. Anyway, so she talks about the epic battle of a regulation that's coming this year. And after FTX and SBF's exploits in 2022, we can be sure that Washington DC and other regulatory centers are gearing up to really put a thumb down on crypto and its perceived weaknesses. To quote Laura Shin, she says, there's gonna be a harsh crypto regulation proposed and an epic battle by the community, meaning the crypto community, 
to fight the parts of it that threaten decentralization. So what do you think about that uh, prediction? How do you see that playing out, Danny? Yeah, I think it's 100% correct. Like this fight over regulation is only going to get stronger now that Sam Bankman-Fried, who positioned himself as the face of crypto regulation in Washington, has been shown to be or alleged to be a giant fraud. And the market has really done a very bad job of regulating itself. And all that sends a message to DC that it needs to step in and do something. What the question is, is whether the something that they do addresses the problem. The FTX wasn't a problem of decentralization. It was a problem of centralization. A single entity or entities under a single person had so much power and were able to exploit that. So I want to see what happens in DC. Regardless of that, it's clear to me that something has to be done. Someone has to set the rules of the game. Right. But it's interesting that you know, there are two completely different sort of takeaways from what happened with SBF. You know, there's some people are saying, you know, we've got too much decentralization and we need to take control of the industry and we need to have proper gatekeepers and proper reporting and, you know, regulators doing their job day to day looking under the hood. And then there's a whole other group of people from crypto who said, basically, as you said, SBF was an example of over-centralization. And therefore, what we need to do is double down on the decentralization dream uh, and really bring that to fruition. So both things can't happen this year. So, I mean, how do you see that playing out, Danny? I guess I would hope that regulators really focus their attention on the businesses that demand to be regulated, that those being businesses that present themselves and, and function as entities in the traditional sense of the word. FTX was certainly an entity in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, it was a company, and it was doing things that no company should be doing. If we had stronger demands of these types of companies that are centralized entities to show that they're acting honestly, then at the very least, we can have confidence that those companies are acting properly. Exactly. All right, let's move on to the next prediction. And I know we were just saying that uh, NFTs are having a tough time and people are selling off their uh, worthless entities for uh, tax loss reasons. But this prediction is actually counter to that. And it's to say, don't count out NFTs this year. And that's because as Jamie Burke, who is a CEO and founder of Outlier Ventures and a major investor in NFTs, says in the article, there are lots of Web2 brands, uh, you know, Starbucks, Disney, many other sort of household names that have invested heavily in NFTs in the last year. So that bodes well for a uptick in demand. So basically, we're going to see a switch from the kind of artist-led NFT revolution to more of a corporate-based revolution. So what do you think about that, Danny? You know, I don't know. We, I don't fully buy that companies are really investing in NFTs. When you look at Starbucks and Polygon, well, behind the scenes, this is being made possible because an entity such as Polygon is reaching out and offering grants to companies such as Starbucks to say, hey, come build on us. Now, that's indicative of the crypto industry wanting to bring in the brands, less and to a certain extent indicative of the brands willing to play ball. But one thing it doesn't show is that the users and the customers of these brands are going to engage with these platforms in the long term. And that's going to be the big proof in the pudding as to whether these big projects will succeed or not. So what I'm looking forward to seeing in 2023 is whether customers actually engage with and continue to engage with the NFTs. Right. So it's one thing for uh, people to put out NFTs and invest in them, but it needs customers and interested parties to be sustainable. 
for sure. Good. Okay, let's move on to a third prediction from that article. That is number nine here, which is that the big exchanges will become disaggregated. So this is really picking up on uh, FTX and SBF again. Uh, one of the big kind of dreams or visions of FTX and uh, SBF was to basically vertically integrate across the value chain like a conglomerate. You know, picking up on that, Hasib Qureshi, who is a managing partner at Dragonfly Capital, and I would say one of the smartest people in the whole crypto universe. To quote, uh, exchange stack will be disaggregated. We'll see custody, brokerage, and exchange price discovery get broken out into different players, just like in traditional finance. So uh, what do you think about that, Danny? Well, I would hope so. I really do hope that that does come to pass because it would follow with that theme of decentralization. Even when you're talking about companies, if you have these different services broken off across different companies, well, then a failure at one point won't necessarily knock out everything. It's also antithetical to how these companies try to operate, because if you're vertically integrated, you can make a lot more money, one, by having more services, and two, by being a lot more efficient. You don't need to pay third parties. So I'm hopeful that these exchanges will start to become disaggregated, but I don't know what the impetus for it will be. It might have to be something like regulation. So I don't know how it comes to pass. It's interesting how there's kind of this constant push and pull between centralization and decentralization. And, you know, we want to support these big players like FTX, or we did support them at the time to become more powerful and sort of build the industry up. But there's an inherent problem with that, that that inevitably leads to centralization and the, all, all the problems that comes with that. It's kind of an interesting question going forward about how we have a big growing industry without having the problem of centralization coming with it. Yes. And for me, it all goes back to a fight between, let's say, the philosophy of cryptocurrency and the reality of capitalism, if you will. You make more money by centralizing forces, but by centralizing forces, you also go against the whole idea of being one's own bank and decentralization that crypto started as being all about. Right. I mean, just to kind of pick up on that, I mean, there's a big kind of ugly, unspoken truth of capitalism, which is that, you know, when you can knock out competition in your market uh, that is helpful for your long-term business model. So I think that was also happening with SBF that he was trying to buy up all of his competitors and creating a rather uncompetitive situation for himself. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. All right, everyone. Well, Cam's out this week. That means it's time for Danny's Dungeon. This is my little corner where I get to rant, which is my favorite thing to do. Danny's Dungeon. Oh, yeah. Dungeon. dungeon. All right. Here in the dungeon this week, we are going to talk about Mango Markets, a Solana DeFi exchange, and one of the fallen of this past cycle because a man named Avraham Eisenberg ran a highly profitable trading strategy on Mango Markets that basically drained the protocol of $110 million. Now, just to catch our listeners up to the full story, 
Avraham Eisenberg was a pseudonymous when he did this. He then went on the governance forum for Mega Market, said, I have the money. I'll give you back the money if you promise not to sue me. And I get to keep some of it, a good chunk of it. The community said, okay, he got to keep $67 million. They got some of their money back. They returned it to their customers who had been stolen from by him. Then he outed himself on Twitter, bragged about his great victory in the market trenches. And then just at the end of last year, he was arrested in Puerto Rico for market manipulation and a host of other charges related to his exploitation of a DeFi protocol. So Ben, what do you think of this? We're seeing this weird convergence of DeFi governance and actual governance, and it's resulted in a man who was really a little bit too brazen, I would say, getting arrested. I have a slightly more positive take on that, Danny, and this comes from a op-ed that we published just before the new year by a former CFTC counsel named Gareth Rhodes. And he was talking about the importance of this case for showing that individuals or white hat operators can uncover problems or weaknesses in decentralized protocols. And so, you know, we might have worries about his actions and the way in which this guy was making money from this uh, situation, but it did show that we don't need, necessarily need to rely on regulators or centralized entities to uncover problems in these systems. Uh, well, what, what exactly does he mean by that? Because the way that this went down was basically, we'll get a little technical here for a quick second, but Eisenberg had a whole bunch of money in, in stable coins. He bought futures contracts, a special type of futures contract on Mango Markets, he then sold those contracts to himself in another account. Now, that massive move of money changed the price of a token so dramatically that he had also had taken a short on that position, and he was able to get a whole bunch of money from that trade by basically manipulating the market in his favor. Now, this wasn't a hack. It was just sort of funny financial dealings. And it did result in a lot of pain for the community because even when they got some of their money back, well, the tokens had devalued, so they were hardly made whole. How does his exploit, even though it's trending toward resolution, how is that a positive for the ecosystem? Well, what I mean by hack is the sense of uh, using something for something that it's not designed for. And that, that was his defense, you know, when he was tweeting about it, he was saying he was simply using, to quote, uh, he was using the protocol as designed, even if the development team did not anticipate all the consequences of setting parameters the way they are. So basically, he, he might have done something that was untoward or unethical or, you know, exploiting the situation, but you can't blame somebody for using a product in a different way that you intended it to be used. You know, that's not a crime. I guess so. I would say, though, that he knew that he had done something wrong. The day after he did the exploit, he flew to Israel, where he could have expected to not get extradited back to the United States. He then entered into an agreement, or what he thought was an agreement, with the Dow for Mango Markets, where they basically said to him, well, we won't sue you in civil court, and we also won't participate in any federal investigations. Now, I've talked to some lawyers, and I, I guess the consensus is Eisenberg was a real dum-dum for thinking that a governance vote would actually protect him from legal liability. As is the case now, he has been arrested. And just so you know, you can't promise not to participate in a federal investigation. 
That's up to the feds. So he was not smart about this at all. And he also knew that he had done something wrong. Sure. And I think generally, you know, uh, it's sometimes a fine line between innovation and, you know, illegal activity, because it's, it's only through playing with things and iterating on them and finding new uses for things that were designed for other uses that you find new products and new ways forward. And if you stop allowing that innovative process, then uh, you kind of lose the beauty of crypto and, and everything that's kind of creative about it. I would agree entirely. This is the beauty of crypto right here. But then buying a bunch of uh, futures contracts and then selling them to yourself through another account, I would not call that innovative. So a little bit of both sides there from me. Right. Well, maybe it's just pushing the boundaries or something. Oh, it's cer- certainly that. Certainly pushing the boundaries. Going back to that idea of legal liability. Well, Eisenberg, when he came to the DAO and said, let's make a deal, you don't sue me. I walk away with the, with the money as sort of a bounty. There was some debate in the Discord for Mango Markets DAO as to how the protocol should proceed. They were saying, well, are we actually saying to this guy, we won't sue you? Is that even legal? Can we promise not to come after you with a federal investigation? We're not, we're not federal prosecutors. Is that our domain? And also, how is this enforceable? If I, as a token holder, vote against this proposal, but the proposal passes, am I bound to follow the proposal and not sue this guy in civil court for damages incurred? It raises all these questions of how the real legal system clashes with DeFi governance. Ben, what do you think? Like, How much credence should we give decentralized governance and the outcomes of votes when they're asking things of the users? Right. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great point and it's a real dilemma, but I think if you really believe in democracy and if you really believe in governance done this way, then you have to abide by what the majority is saying. Yeah, I guess I would say so. I would agree with you. It's just so tricky. It's like, well, this guy allegedly broke the law. He came to an agreement with you because he believed, stupidly I would say, but he believed that you as the DAO would abide by the outcome of your DAO vote. So should we believe any of it? Should we believe anything that a DAO says it will do if it's not actually in a smart contract? If the DAO can't actually effectuate transfer of the assets through a vote, should that vote mean anything? In my mind, no, because there's no enforcement. There's no enforceability. There's just people's word. And then you get to trust. And crypto is about creating trustless systems. And you do that through smart contracts. And just saying you'll do something isn't enough. Right. And and surely uh, the majority of legal opinion would agree with you, right? I mean, they would say that these governance arrangements aren't enforceable when it comes to it. Oh, 100%. There's a million reasons why the outcome of a governance vote means absolutely nothing in a legal context. Right. All right. We've come to the end of another bumper show. Danny, thanks so much for doing this. And I hope you have a good week in the week ahead. And my name is Ben Schiller. That was Danny Nelson. And we're wrapping up another episode of Carpe Consensus. We'll see you uh, next time. And we'll also see you at Consensus in April in Austin, Texas. So we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? 
email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.